Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Thursday morning, the 2nd of August. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Last week's RTA investigates expose of men looking for sex for rent, shocked and indeed disgusted most of us. Sleazy, wealthy men exploiting a housing crisis, telling young, vulnerable women, because I have and you do not, I can make an offer that under, under any other circumstance would not be of any interest to you. But if you would prefer to have a nice, cosy place to live instead of being homeless, presumably you can't refuse spending a few hours a week in my bed in order to live there for free. Let's speak to Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. As I'm sure you know, Owen O'Brien introduced legislation yesterday which would outline such a practice. A very good morning to you, Owen O'Brien, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, I suppose a lot of us saw firsthand what is happening uh, and how it's happening, how it's being advertised on certain websites uh, and in sometimes uh, uh, on, on some occasions rather uh, without uh, disguising what is going on uh, with uh, that programme on RTE last week, uh, men speaking to a, an undercover reporter. But this is not something new. Indeed, the Irish Examiner was reporting on, on this three years ago, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely, and and incredible investigative journalism by um, Anne Murphy from the Irish Examiner first brought this to light uh, about 18 months ago or so. Uh, she ran a series of articles in the Irish Examiner uh, that led to both myself and other opposition spokespeople in the first instance writing to Minister for Housing Dara O'Brien and Minister for Justice Helen McEntee and urging them to work together uh, to outlaw this practice. Uh, to his credit, uh, Kian O'Callaghan, the mm. Social Democrats housing spokesperson, then introduced justice legislation in March of last year uh, uh, to make uh, sex for rent uh, a specific offence under criminal justice legislation. That was debated in the Dáil last year. Uh, she enthusiastically supported it. The government didn't oppose it. And the matter was then referred to committee for further consideration. However, the government then uh, uh, blocked progress of the bill at committee on the grounds that while they said they supported the spirit of the legislation, Helen McEntee said that she was undertaking a more comprehensive review of all of the legislation underpinning sexual and gender-based violence, and she would include this in that. Uh, those of us in the opposition uh, accepted the government's bona fides. We wanted to work on a cross-party basis. But a year on uh, from when the committee rejected uh, 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 Keno Callan's bill, so that was last June, uh, Helen McEntee has actually stated that she has no timeline for the conclusion of that work. And then I think, again, to their credit, Ortiz investigates program in prime time was a timely reminder of this disgusting predatory practice where exactly as you described in, in your intro, Michael, a very small number of, of landlords uh, uh, are using the fact that rents have never been higher, rental properties have never been more difficult to get and the risk of homelessness 
uh, is real for very many, that they're preying on uh, women, uh, vulnerable women, women from other countries uh, with this sex for rent arrangement. So yesterday I published a new piece of legislation and what this seeks to do is to amend the Residential Tenancies Act to make it an offence under the RTA for a landlord to seek sex in lieu of rent uh, or to advertise such arrangements. And unlike you know, Callahan's legislation, which was very good, but which was justice legislation, uh, my proposal is a proposal uh, for the Department of Housing uh, to change the landlord-tenant law. And therefore, I'm really hoping, uh, uh, given the appalling uh, uh, evidence that we saw on our television screens only a few days ago, that Darrell O'Brien and the government uh, embrace our proposal in the cross-party spirit we've presented it. Uh, and when we bring this legislation to the floor of the Dáil in September and October, they support it. Mm. And I said yesterday at the press conference launching the legislation, if the minister has a better wording, if the minister has a better proposition to deal with this, that's fine. We will work with them. I don't care whose name is on the legislation. No person uh, should be in a situation where in order to try and put a roof over their head, a very basic right... Uh, uh, they're being asked to do uh, 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 things that are absolutely unacceptable yeah. uh, in, in any society. So, and I think one of the most disturbing, and hopefully they will support it. I think one of the most disturbing parts of uh, the primetime program was the couple who advertised specifically for a Ukrainian woman, knowing that Ukrainian women are particularly vulnerable uh, and may be making an offer that they can't refuse, uh, in other words. Uh, and therein lies the seediness, uh, the horribleness of it. Uh, and uh, I think uh, most decent people thinking in uh, people in this country uh, feel that it, it should be outlawed and that it shouldn't be happening anyway. And that certainly has been the feedback that we've been getting. But do we need... Uh, 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 legislation specifically against this. I mean, is this not illegal anyway? Amending the Residential Tenancies Act uh, whilst it's well-intentioned, is it the right act to be amending if legislation needs to be amended? Uh, I mean, is this not uh, the equivalent of purchasing sex and should it not be covered under the laws which outlaw the purchase of sex? And they're all very, very important questions which we've been deliberating over for two years. There is an argument put forward by some uh, that where sex for rent takes place, that that would be considered sex under duress and therefore it would be covered under existing legislation. Uh, However, the the purpose of my bill is to go further than that. Um, What I want to do is to make the requesting of sex in lieu of rent an offence under the Residential Tenancies Act and the advertising of such arrangements. Those two things, first of all, are not currently on statute books. They are not offences. And what we don't want is a situation where you have to wait for the offence of the Sex Act taking place uh, for prosecution to be permissible because we know, uh, talking to Women's Aid and and the uh, Women's Council of Ireland, the enormous difficulties that women have going through the courts after sexual assault or rape has has occurred. Uh, And therefore, while... I'm still of the view, mm. and I support uh, Keanu Callaghan on this, that we do need justice legislation to make it very, very explicit. I also think we need the preventative measures of the seeking of sex for rent and the advertising of such arrangements to be prohibited. I, I do believe the Residential Tenancies Act is the right place because there's a primary piece of legislation that covers landlords and tenants' relationships, and mm. Section 19 of that bill sets out the rules for the setting of rent. Uh, 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 and what's valuable about the Residential Tenancies Act and my proposal is not just that it's preventative, but you don't have to go to the court. Uh, so therefore, if somebody goes to meet a landlord uh, um, in good faith to secure a tenancy, and if that landlord makes the kind of appalling uh, uh, propositions that we saw on RT Investigates, 
um, uh, and and uh, I have evidence of that. I can go to the RTB. It's a non-judicial forum. It doesn't require solicitors. It doesn't require cross-examination. I can present the evidence that I have, and they can make a determination legally binding, which can involve very, very significant fines. Uh, uh, or if they feel the case is serious enough, uh, they can then proceed to the court to prosecute mm. and seek a custodial sentence. Uh, and I think that would send a very, very powerful signal to anybody out there who thinks this is acceptable, that if you do this, uh, the law is on the side uh, of the tenant. Uh, I think it's very interesting. The Irish Examiner has a very strong editorial today to say time for legislation is now. But I do think it's very disappointing that the Taoiseach yesterday indicated uh, that we don't need uh, uh, changes in legislation at the same time as Helen McEntee, his party colleague, has said she's actively considering this matter. There is nothing in legislation today that prohibits what we saw on prime time the other day. Nothing whatsoever. Uh, and that is what I want to see outlawed and that is what I want to see. That's what I can't understand. The purchase of sex the purchase of sex is illegal. Uh, Are are you saying that uh, in your opinion those men were not looking to purchase sex? So two things. My understanding of the legislation in terms of the purchase of sex is the legislation explicitly references prostitution and therefore the criminal offence under that legislation is only the purchase of sex uh, uh, from people who are deemed by the courts to be prostitutes. There is a more general... Okay, well, so can, can I just stop you for a second there? Because I think the, the question people are asking... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just... Uh, I'm yeah, come back ahead, to your second point. But, uh, I, I mean, I think people really are struggling to understand this. Uh, and I, I, I'm uh, slow to say this, uh, but I, I couldn't help but feel that those men were looking to prostitute those women. All I can say to you is from, from discussing that matter uh, with people who are uh, experts in the, in the legal field, they have indicated to me that the problem with the, the legislation which prescribes the, the, the purchase of sex is the legislation specifically talks about purchasing sex from prostitutes. Uh, in this instance, uh, what we're talking about is renters, prospective renters seeking a tenancy. And the very fact that we're having this Discussion, mm. uh, and the fact that we've had this but are those renters not becoming prostitutes because they're put in a, a position where they're being forced to sell themselves let's uh, let's let's let, let, let's not they're let's giving sex it, it, well that's let me make this point Michael because okay. it's important because we've been talking about this for two years uh, and this is still taking place uh, and let's not leave this to a court case in two years time to adjudicate on the matter that you've just asked mm. Let's make the law crystal clear in two respects. One, within the context of landlord-tenant relationships, seeking sex for rent uh, or advertising such arrangements is prohibited. Let's do that. Likewise, within the Criminal Justice Code, which is a matter, obviously, for the Department of Justice, let's explicitly uh, reference uh, sex for rent as an offence, in addition to the purchase of sex uh, uh, and sex under duress or rape. I think the clearer the law is, the greater the protection. Uh, and the value of moving on the Residential Tenancies Act now is it can be done very, very quickly. Uh, uh, there is no requirement for a, judicial, a legal review. Uh, we make changes to the Residential Tenancies Act all the time. The vast majority of landlords out there would be, I suspect, more than delighted with such a change because the vast majority of landlords out there are, are, are doing what they should be doing. They're complying with the law. They're complying with standards. Mm. Uh, and they're complying with the tax code. And this kind of abhorrent behaviour by what I hope is a tiny, tiny number of landlords brings the entire profession into disrepute. 
So actually, I think in this instance, not only would the public mm. uh, uh, and many legal professionals share the view that uh, this is necessary, but I also think the vast majority of landlords as well as tenants would say, make the change, clarify the law, sure. uh, mm-hmm. and let's clamp down on this. Okay, and I think the vast majority of landlords form uh, their own relationships with other people. They go out and meet uh, men or women or whoever it is they want to have a, a relationship with uh, and then rent out their property rather than using their wealth to expose vulnerable people who may not be able to afford somewhere to live or find somewhere to live. The amount of people who called into us, though, last week asking why RTE didn't show the faces of uh, the men that they were speaking to was unbelievable. And obviously, uh, there's uh, a legal aspect to that uh, and the constitutional aspect to that, that you're innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But many others also asked, why are the guards not arresting those men and prosecuting them and testing the existing laws? And, and for me, that's the really interesting question. And of course, we don't know what that's happened because of the guards were pursuing that as a, as a criminal matter. That's not something they would necessarily advertise. However, I do suspect the fact that the law isn't clear in this respect is that those individuals, uh, because sex wasn't ultimately procured, uh, it was only the request uh, for sex for rent uh, that was recorded, that that isn't an offence under the law and therefore no prosecution is permissible. I suspect the Guardian are looking very closely at that programme uh, um, and that's a matter that I presume we will find out about at a later stage. But what I would say is, two years on from Anne Murphy, uh, uh, that very good report from the Irish Examiner exposing this, we're still here having the same conversation. Um, and if the existing laws were strong enough, then RTE shouldn't have been able to uncover what they uncovered only a few short uh, days ago. And I think that in itself is evidence of the need uh, for further change. What we're talking about is something very simple. It's simply putting in the Residential Tenancies Act, the act that governs landlord-tenant relationships, a very clear prohibition, that it is not legally permissible for a landlord when engaging with a prospective tenant to ask for sex instead of uh, uh, rental payments. Hmm. And it is not permissible for a landlord to advertise those on social media. I can see no reason why that shouldn't be on the statute. Hmm. And then empowering the Residential Tenancies Board, a non-judicial, non-court-based independent body, to be able to take action against the small number of landlords who think that this is an acceptable practice. Okay, if it stops it, well and good. Uh, But again, is it enough? I mean, should these men not be exposed and treated under the law for what they are, which is sexual predators who are looking to exploit women in very, very vulnerable situations because they have and the women don't? It's repugnant in the extreme. Should the purchase of sex laws also be amended so that if it's discovered that that is what a landlord is doing, that they are prosecuted for for purchasing sex. Take out take out that uh, part that you were saying uh, that it has to be with prostitutes. If these women who are renting are not defined as prostitutes uh, because they don't uh, work in prostitution with different men uh, and it's only an arrangement that they have with the landlord, could that not be uh, a law that could be changed so that these men could be exposed for what they are? Sure, and keep in mind the Residential Tenancies Act empowers the Residential Tenancies Board to impose very significant fines and or to pursue uh, custodial sentences to the courts, uh, and that means people to be imprisoned uh, for those breaches. Uh, Like I say, uh, I'm not saying that the Residential Tenancies Act uh, reforms are instead of reforms of the wider judicial code in terms of prohibiting sex for rent. I'd like to see both because I'd like to see the seeking of such arrangements, the advertising of such arrangements, and then the arrangements themselves 
all three aspects of it uh, uh, to be prohibited under the law and appropriate sanctions and punishments in place. Uh, and I think if that was the case, if it was very clear, uh, and if those punishments uh, were well known, uh, I, I think that would go a very, very long way to addressing this. Obviously, the effectiveness of it we'd have to see, uh, but uh, 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 there is no argument to say we should do nothing. And essentially mm. what the Taoiseach uh, was saying yesterday, reported on the front page of the Irish Exam today, is there's no need for a change of the law. Uh, I think anybody looking at this uh, with an ounce of common sense would say there is a need to change the law. Uh, and if, for example, and I said this earlier in your, your interview, mm-hmm. If the Minister for Housing has a better way of doing this, no problem whatsoever. I'll happily withdraw my legislation and support his alternative proposals. Uh, This should be done on a cross-party basis, on a cross-government and opposition basis. This is about protecting renters. This is about protecting women from appalling predatory behaviour. There should be no party politics in this. And we'll work with anybody to ensure uh, uh, that those, exactly as you said, often very... Uh, vulnerable uh, uh, tenants, often women, women from other countries, women fleeing war and persecution, mm. get the full protection of the law that they rightly deserve. Yeah. Uh, and could it be extended to uh, other things that are being offered in return for sex? Uh, you hear of drugs being offered uh, for sex, or, or God knows. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the value of the uh, item uh, that uh, is paying for the sex, uh, whether that's the value of what it would cost in rent or the value of uh, the drugs or the value of the car or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, purchasing sex is purchasing sex, whether, whether it's uh, with hard currency or not. Well, what I will say is there is that wider review of, of uh, sexual and gender-based violence um, as part of that very comprehensive piece of work that Helen McEntee is doing. There are people much, much more uh, equipped to deal with the, the detail of that than I am. As you know, I'm the housing spokesperson and I focus on those issues. Mm. Uh, and my colleague, Pa Daly, our justice spokesperson, will be engaging with the Minister for Justice on many of those wider questions you asked. Mm. But while that is being done today, uh, there is an opportunity for government to say on this very specific issue of sex for rent, which has been highlighted both by the Irish Examiner and RT Investigates, let's deal with that because we can deal with that now while that wider review of all those more complex issues uh, are being considered. Um, uh, because what we don't want is for this just to drift on for another year or two and another television show or radio show or newspaper journalist is exposing this uh, yet again. Uh, uh, the time for action on sex for rent is when the doll comes back in September, September and October. We're giving the opportunity to the government uh, to work with us on it. They should either take that opportunity or put an alternative proposal on the table. Then let's legislate it, let's outlaw it, uh, and let's give renters the protections they rightly deserve. Okay, we leave it there, and uh, uh, we hope, uh, obviously, uh, most of our listeners, that is, uh, that this practice will end soon as a result of your legislation or some other means, as you say yourself. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Ono Bryn is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. Our telephone number is 0419832000. You can comment on this or something else if you wish to by texting us our text number or WhatsApp number for that matter 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks to Mary for the first WhatsApp message of the day coming to us. She says, Michael, those men looking for sex and exploiting the vulnerable women is absolutely horrific. They are absolutely evil. 
and there's a number of exclamation marks and need to be exposed. They obviously have money, which makes one think they are respected among society. If people only knew what goes on behind closed doors, show them up for what they are, then lock them up and throw away the key. Thanks, Mary. As I say, for your WhatsApp message to us uh, this morning on 0861800658. An email that comes uh, to us uh, from Jean O'Brien in Trim. Thanks, Jean, uh, for your email. Quite a a long email, but I'll read it for you now because it it is interesting. I think people will find uh, what you have to say, Jean, fairly interesting. She says, Dear Michael, I listened with interest to your interview yesterday with Bernardo's about the cost of returning to school and how it's crippling some parents. 25% of parents can't afford to pay themselves, Bernardo say. Isn't it very interesting that the Minister for Education that introduced free education in the 1960s said back then that about 25% of parents couldn't pay for their children's education. You asked why is it that that pledge in 1967 was to make school books free of charge and it still hasn't been delivered nearly 60 years on since Donnick O'Malley said it would be the case. It is a fair question but it led me to asking another separate question. Why is it that a quarter of parents don't put money aside and instead of crying out for a free lunch take responsibility themselves for their own children. Did they plan to have a family? Did they not know that if they have children, the children will have to go to school one day and yes, like everyone else, they will have to buy their school books and their uniform shoes and whatever else need they need so that they are equipped for life in the world that we live in. I don't know much about sending children to school myself as I am a single woman in my 40s, but I can't help thinking that it is me and other mugs like me who end up paying for these children's education. I get out of bed early every morning at half five. I travel to Dublin for work and it's usually around half seven before I get home in the evening to trim. I go to bed early and get up again the next day to do it all over again. I don't ask anyone for anything, but despite having a good salary, I too am feeling the impact of inflation. My groceries, my heat, my electricity have all gone up in price uh, as well. Uh, And don't get me going on the cost of petrol. Is there anyone to give me a handout? No, there isn't. And no, I don't want one. I want to work hard and pay my own way. I just don't understand why I have to pay for these people who don't seem to want to fend for themselves. I can't help but feel that many of them will say, why should they when there's plenty of mugs like me who can pay their bills for them? Last weekend, I overheard a conversation between two women in a changing room. Uh, They were complaining about the unaffordable cost of school books. Uh, the conversation went on to one of uh, the women talking uh, about a Netflix series that they both seemed to like and how they wouldn't be able to live without Sky Television so that their husbands can watch sport and leave them in peace to watch their programmes. When I went to the till, the same women were in front of me, arms full of new outfits that they were paying for in cash. One of the women kept checking her phone a very expensive state-of-the-art, most up-to-date smartphone. I noticed the women later on in another shop front chatting and having a smoke. Good God, I thought. How much are cigarettes these days? 15 euro? Who can afford that? Not me. How can these women afford to smoke 
if they can't afford to send their children to school. Likewise, how can they afford Sky TV, Netflix, very expensive phones, fake tans and whatever else if they can't afford to send their children to school? Do they drink? What else do they spend their money on? Where do they get all of this money from? I I can't afford all of those things, but it is me and other mugs like me, it seems, who end up paying to send their children to school. Instead of uh, the state buying their children's school books, would it not be a better idea to provide these women with contraception and tell them that if they have children, their children will need to go to school someday and, yes, that means that they are going to have to buy their school books because that is their responsibility, not mine. Thanks, Michael. Jean O'Brien in Trim. Thank you indeed, Jean, uh, for your email. Michael at lmfm.ie is our email address. Now, uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says uh, they totally agree with Mary, who was texting in about these men who advertise sex for rent. Uh, and just to remind you what Mary she's, Mary said, show them up for what they are, then lock them up and throw away the key. Thank you indeed uh, for your message. Sean in Dublin 9 says, RTE expose, give me a break. It's the oldest profession in the world and RTE has shown that they are experts when barter is involved. Thanks, uh, Sean, in Dublin 9 for that. Yes, prostitution probably is the oldest profession in the world. But I think what we're talking about here, Sean, is ordinary women who are not prostitutes, who would never be prostitutes, who would never become prostitutes, who are looking for somewhere to live, but have been unfortunate enough to live in this day and age in this country where it's impossible to find somewhere to live and it's unaffordable if you do find somewhere to live, who then come across somebody who says, well, you can live here for free. It's lovely. It's warm. It's cosy. It's out of the breeze. It's off the streets and it's free. Uh, for sex. Uh, That's not exactly free uh, and I'm not sure it's exactly prostitution, which is why there is a question as to whether the purchase for sex laws cover uh, what is happening as things stand and if it's uh, the Residential Tenancies Act that needs to be amended, which is what Owen O'Brien of Sinn Féin is proposing to do. But thank you, as always, Sean, uh, for your message. Your text is always appreciated. Just to remind you, if you do want to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419 Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Do you smoke? No, of course not. Uh, do you vape? No? Okay. Do your children vape? No? Okay. Are you sure? Is there any way of being sure? Because a a lot of children are vaping and a lot of uh, children are using these uh, disposable vapes. They're very attractive uh, to children because they can spend the whole day vaping and come home. Nobody knows anything about it. There's no smell off them. No evidence to say that they were... Uh, engaging in uh, this modern form of smoking or indeed uh, of uh, making sure that their addiction to nicotine is uh, being served. Uh, But there is a a lot of people who want these disposable vapes to be banned. Uh, There's evidence of this from a survey uh, or a bigger pardon, a petition uh, that has been signed by thousands of people. Uh, This is being put forward by Voice Ireland uh, 
and indeed uh, Voice Ireland has written uh, to the government asking for disposable vapes to be outlawed. Stephen Byrne, project manager with Voice Ireland, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, when they're disposable, they're often thrown away and not often is it uh, that uh, they're disposed of appropriately? Hey, Michael, thanks for having us on. No, definitely not. And as you mentioned, yeah, probably one of the most concerning aspects of disposable vapes is the fact that they are are very attractive to young people. You'll see them on the streets. They look like highlighter pens and they come in all sorts of fancy flavours, bubblegum, watermelon, mango. Um, And yeah, of course, um, Voices' stance is most certainly the environmental uh, impacts as well. Um, we've anecdotal evidence that many times people buy them and ask the retailer, oh, where do I, where can I return these? Uh, can I bring them back to you? And they say, but sure, they're disposable. Just, just chuck them in the bin. Mm. And that is definitely not the case. They contain electronics, they contain lithium, and they contain copper. These are valuable materials, but um, they're certainly not something that should be disposed of into landfill. Um, oftentimes they can actually, they're a fire hazard. Uh, if they're not managed properly, they can be a fire hazard. Um not only that, as I said, they're a waste of resources. And mm. um, as we look, you know, Europe and Ireland look to, you know, lower our emissions and move to a green economy. Uh, these are the materials that we need exactly to move to that green economy. Okay, I was uh, reading that uh, it's far from uh, moving towards a, a green economy for the reasons you just outlined, uh, but that on an annual bi- basis, the vape business uses 90 tonnes of lithium and 1,600 tonnes of copper. I can't even visualise that in my mind's eye. It's, it's massive. And the opportunity cost of all that lithium and all that copper is electric vehicles. Um, and these are the things that we need. Um, you know, right now the EU is <clears throat> lithium is considered a vulnerable material that you know the EU is trying to secure supply chains of, uh, and so to be wasting them on a disposable vape is is just ridiculous. Okay, uh, tell us uh, about your petition. How many people have signed the petition, and if people do want to sign the petition, how do they go about it? Yeah, absolutely, we would encourage people to sign it. It's on uplift.ie, and at the moment we're up to nearly uh, three thousand signatures. There's about 2,800. We'd also encourage people so to ban disposable vapes is under public consultation. Minister Oshin Smith, Minister of the Circular Economy has put it under public consultation under the Department of Environment and Climate. Um, so that's really important that people sign our petition but then also going a step further and sign the public con- consultation. If people want to see these products being banned um, Mr. Uh, Minister Oshin Smith is the one putting that forward. Right now, he has three ways of further regulating them. The, the priority and the best outcome would be to ban them outright, and that would be under the Waste um, Management Act, and that would ban the, either the manufacturing or the sale of disposable vapes in Ireland. Uh, the second would be to set up proper deposit return schemes so that retailers are um, with taking them back and disposing of them properly. And lastly would be sort of an EPR where, and that's the extended producer responsibility, so that the producers of disposable vapes are contributing to their waste management. But ultimately, we'd like to see them banned, both for the health reasons and the environmental reasons. Okay, and you're not the only one. Um, The Irish Heart Foundation carried out a a survey, a scientific survey. It was carried out by a research company, Ipsos, and... Uh, they found that 64% of respondents support banning disposable vapes. 28% uh, uh, 
proposed uh, and 8% unsure. So that's a, a massive uh, uh, indication uh, that uh, a massive amount of people who would support the ban. Uh, obviously, they're uh, asking for it because of concerns to do with health, uh, but you have similar concerns as well as the environmental impact, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And Voice wouldn't be, we're not a health organisation, but based on our research, we are seeing that these these products, although they're often falsely advertised as being safer alternatives to smoking, uh, there's no long-term evidence to suggest that. And actually, it's suggested that the aerosol um, materials or the aerosol vapour that is used to inhale um, can have negative impacts on the respiratory system and it can have inflammatory effects. Um, the Irish Health Foundation, yeah, they, it's great that they put out uh, work on this as well. For our campaign, we um, created an open letter to Ministers Oshin Smith and Stephen Donnelly and the Irish Heart Foundation were co-signatories as well, along with other environmental groups. And it's just, going back to the health stuff, it's amazing that it's only recently that Stephen Donnelly has been able to um, create the legislation that bans the sale of disposal vapes to minors. Up until recently, um, that was up to retailers' discretion, which is just amazing to think that these products because of their advertising, because of their influence, have been able to just um, recapture the market of youth smoking and uh, youth uh, nicotine consumption. It really is unbelievable how many young people are are smoking uh, and uh, how attractive they are to young people who believe uh, that there is no risk to them. Uh, And perhaps, uh, I mean, I think the jury is out on that to some degree, uh, Stephen, as to whether there is a health risk or how great that health risk is. But there's no doubt uh, that we're turning a blind eye to children taking up years, if not a a lifetime of addiction. Absolutely. And it would be great to see Ireland being the first country in the EU to outright ban them. There are other countries internationally that have done this, Australia being an example. Um, they have put in a lot of legislation around vaping. Uh, disposable vapes are have an AY ban, and even with the reusable vapes, which voice don't necessarily have an opinion on, but they have banned the exotic flavours, such as the mangoes, the bubblegums, that it has to be just tobacco flavour. Mm. Um, so that's pretty mm. positive. And the fancy packaging or the design that they look like lipstick or whatever it is uh, for that matter. I was speaking to a long-time smoker who's given up cigarettes uh, to take up vaping, told me that uh, they to travel uh, quite a, a distance to a, a meeting not so long ago, uh, forgot their reusable vape uh, and didn't know what to do, went into a shop and bought one of these disposable vapes, which they said they thought was great because it meant that they didn't have to buy a packet of cigarettes. Is there any argument in that sense for these things? Well, as I said, Voice is an environmental group. Um, we won't make any statement on sort of a, um, nicotine addiction or a nicotine uh, replacement therapy. Definitely from an environmental point of view, though, these disposable vapes are are not in line with Ireland's environmental environmental goals. Mm. And even if they go in the bin, that's your opinion. Uh, the Irish Heart Foundation said that there was a, a clean-up operation on the River River Bride in County Cork, and in just one afternoon, they found 50 single-use discarded vapes just thrown, littered uh, along uh, the riverside. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. And walking around any street in Ireland these days, I think it's hard not to come across uh, disposal vapes. Which is great, though, that, you know, up until now, a lot of the evidence has been anecdotal. But with surveys, like you just mentioned, and this year, the Litter Quantification Survey, Bill, uh, which is commissioned by the Department of the Environment, 
will account for disposable vapes or electronic cigarettes. So it'll be great to see actual statistics and actual numbers about their prevalence on our streets as litter. Okay, well, if people want to ban disposable vapes, they can uh, sign your petition on uplift.ie. Stephen, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Stephen Byrne, Project Manager with Voice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the RTE payment scandal and indeed the result, which is uh, that the national broadcaster is losing money hand over fist. Let's speak uh, to Gabby Gotsvetskatia of uh, the Irish Independent, political reporter for the Irish Independent, uh, who's uh, been reporting on this story and indeed the massive amount of money lost by RTE in the month of July alone. Good morning to you, Gabby, and thank you for joining us on the programme. Three million shortfall uh, in what would have been expected in revenue for RTE through the TV licence system. And I I take it it's because people are voting with uh, their feet, if you like. Yes, so the figure is is edging closer to that three million um, so reporters have been, I suppose, keeping track of what the TV licence numbers are for every week in July. And when you compare them to the same period last year, the new figures from the Department of Media show the TV licence sales for the fourth week in July were 10,661. Um, if you compare that to the same period in, in, in 2022, there was 14,151 licences sold. So this is a drop of um, almost 3,500, which is equivalent to 558,400 euro in revenue. Um, so it's a, it is a big drop, but if you add it up to every single week that we've been tracking it through July, it's almost at 2.7 million uh, loss or, or edging closer to that 3 million. So it is a big mm. hit for RT, and this is something that we were really expecting uh, very, may very well happen as a result of, of course, you know, the scandal linked to the hidden payments to, to top presenter Ryan Tuberty. Now, despite RTE executives' best efforts to come before Rockford committees, and um, of course, we know the Ryan Tuberty and Dave Noel Kelly, they came before Rockford committees also. You know, they try to answer all questions, try to be as transparent as they possibly can be. And, um, you know, those that, that shortfall in TV licenses is still remaining. Of course, we know mm. that. You, you know, you 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 can't you can't kind of put off paying the TV license by a couple of weeks, and, and you won't face really any. You know, you're not going to be, end up in prison, but you do have to, of course, pay it if you do have a television license. Well, the so sanctions are quite steep, really. It's a, a thousand euro for a first so. offence, two thousand for a second offence, and then if you don't pay the fine, uh, there is the potential of a prison sentence. Yes, so perhaps people are putting it off by a couple of weeks as opposed to not paying it at all, mm. because, like I said, it is a criminal offence to have a television and to not pay the TV licence. Now, the 160-euro charge, it's, you know, it's been contentious for really quite a long period of time, and successive governments have promised to overhaul it. If there's a way of making it fair, for example, um, politicians raise the question of, you know, the RT player that you have on your phone, you don't need to pay the TV licence to look at the RT player on your phone or your tablet, for example, mm. but you're still using the same RT service as somebody with a television set. Um, that reform of the charge, it's actually now been paused because um, of the ongoing scandal of Media Minister Catherine Martin saying, you know, we need to restore confidence in RT first. Um, but 
I think likely what we'll see, and I think we are seeing reports today of, you know, that RT is in the red after two years of, of during the pandemic. They, you know, their finances seem to be okay. They're back in the red. I think the bailout this year that they were expecting to be was 16 million. Um, but if people continue to not pay the TV license or to just hold off paying the TV license, you know, it may very well be the case that that number will increase and that perhaps the bailout at budget time will have to be larger. Yeah, well, this is just the story so far. Three million in a month and if it continues like that, as you say, probably won't. But if it was to continue like that, you're talking about a shortfall of 30, 35 million over the course of the year. And I take it that whilst people are putting it off for a week or a few weeks, as you say, they're probably also calculating if the numbers continue at this rate, what will happen? Because you couldn't take all of those people who are not paying for their TV licence to court. Well, look, I suppose that's at the hands of OnPost. You know, they are the collectors of the TV licence. Um, it, it, re- it really is up, up to them to see, you know, how they pursue people and, and, and so on. Like, look, the law is very clear. You have to pay your TV licence. You, you can perhaps maybe chance delaying it by a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, the, there are, you know, the sanctions in place. But ultimately, I think more so than anything, you know, these figures are really quite stark. You know, we're, we're over 2.7 million. We're nearing that 3 million mark in a month, as you say. You know, they send a message to RTE bosses and ultimately the government um, as to what, how do we ultimately, you know, overhaul the TV licence. RTE have been for a long time pushing for revenue to collect it. There was for a very long time pushback from government and the government side of that. And now it seems that perhaps this is kind of I think maybe RT have won the battle perhaps that maybe, you know, government sources are indicating now that they might go towards the revenue model. But there's some, you know, for example, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne, he's been saying, you know, scrap the TV licence and fund it through general taxation, through the newly established Media Commission. Um, So it's done at an arm's length from government um, and so that they can keep an eye on RT finances that way. That's, a, a, you know, maybe a little bit of a fairer way to do it. Mm. Um, this dual funding model, Catherine Martin also in recent weeks has been talking about, you know, perhaps is, is it possible um, to get rid of the commercial side and have it just publicly funded? And she's actually said, well, look, if we do get rid of the commercial side, it will be a hundred euro increase to the TV license. So- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormal Normalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. go from 160 to 260 so that's a huge bill for people to pay as well and I think that's accepted across government that's not really feasible um, so I, th- I think Kevin Backhurst of course he's the new director general yep. he's, he's a couple of weeks in the job and I think government is now trying to give him a bit of time to make a few changes I think uh, it's very unusual to see this level of disobedience. Generally speaking, we're a, a law-abiding society uh, and we pay uh, our bills. Uh, I don't think there's been anything like this or on this scale since uh, the water charges. And I would imagine that's indicative of how angry people are uh, and that anger won't be abated until there's significant change at RTE. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what the public really need to see now is, you know, in fairness, Kevin Backhurst is in a good position because he's come in, he's starting afresh. Yes, he was previously in RTE a couple of years ago, but he's really had no hand, act or part in the scandal. So really for him, it can only go up from here. And so he's in a sort of a good, he's a lot of pressure on him, but he's in a good position that way. I think the public need to see change at RT, you know, he's sort of saying, I don't really want to talk to Noel Kelly when it comes to renegotiating Ryan Tuberty's contract, so perhaps there's change on that front that they might change the way relationships work um, between the top presenters and the broadcaster. Um, you know, he's he's overhauled the executive board and he's kept some people, some people he hasn't kept. Um, we've seen one or two people leave and I, I, th- I think that's the focus, you know, we haven't been talking about the controversy every single day, but I think any, any more, certainly mm. for a couple of weeks, we definitely were. Um, but really, we're kind of getting to a point now where the public needs to see action and change. And I also will say that there's a number of documents and important reports that we have not seen from RTE and both from the government as well. So the very report that we're reporting on today, which is the RTE's annual report and accounts that Media Minister Catherine Martin is sitting on, you know, we do need to see that published in full. There's also a report that was compiled by senior servants across government on reform of the TV licence before all of this scandal kicked off. That's been sitting on Catherine Martin's desk. We also need to see that, uh, you know, report come out. We're also, of course, waiting for, and we believe it will come any day now, is that Grand Thornton 2 report, which is going to focus on the understatement of Ryan Tuberty's pay between the years 2017-2019. You know, kind of mixed reports coming on whether or not it's finished or whether or not it's finalised and has been given to government. Like, that needs to come out as soon as possible. And I think once all that information is out there, um, 
the public can then, you know, really have a look, decide for themselves. And Kevin Backhurst can be well on his journey to reforming RTE. It's odd, isn't it, in that uh, people are aghast at what Ryan Tuberty has been earning, half a million or or thereabouts, uh, which is pittance to the close to... Uh, one million that Pat Kenny was earning around 900,000 in a year about 10 years before uh, Ryan Tuberty but people have had it uh, to a large degree at least that's what we're hearing here Gabby uh, and they're fed up with these uh, big salaries at RTE uh, do you think uh, that regardless of what reform takes place at uh, the institution that people will continue to pay their licence fees if uh, some of uh, the presenters are being paid 250, 300, 350,000 euro? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the salaries are enormous and I think if you compare them to, you know, the years gone by, um, I think RTE were very much left scarred. When, when, when Pat Kenny left and when he went to News Talk, um, and, they, and they never really recovered from that. And, and the fear for these, you know, high salaries, the justification for them for many, many years was, well, you know, this presenter is very talented and they could very well go to, you know, Virgin Media or News Talk or any other rival station or perhaps even go abroad. And we have seen presenters go abroad. Um, not everybody's in a position to do so. You know, some of them have young families and so on. For example, Katrina Perry springs to mind. You know, she was a star of the 6-1 for years. And she was, a, you know, she was Washington correspondent in RTE and she was, she was brilliant. Um, and, and she's left for the BBC. And, and, you know, that was a decision that she took. And, and, and that's fair enough. So, it, you know, that should be at their disposal to do that if they so wish. But that was the justification for these, you know, enormous salaries. And the public are looking at the salaries are saying, look, that's taxpayer money that we're paying every single year. Um, Patrick Healy's salary, you know, it is €250,000. So, you know, it, it is much less than Ryan Tuberty's, you know, half a million or 400,000 or thereabouts but of course Patrick Hilty does not have um, a live radio show every single day of, of, of the week Monday through Friday whereas Ryan Tuberty did the radio show and the Late Late um, Patrick Hilty is doing only the Late Late show so look the salaries are very high um, you know perhaps the public maybe are a little bit tired of them they are much less um, than they were a couple of years ago but you know, if, if you do want to attract top talent, I suppose that's what it takes. But I think these arguments of, well, perhaps you could go to another station or go abroad, they don't really hold weight because the reality is, is that there's lots of people that would love to do, um, you know, those presenter roles in RTE. You know, they're, they're very good exposure, of course, but there's a lot of, you know, you get to build a brand of, of trust and people, you know, believe you and, and they follow you and they, and they recognize your name. I think people should be awarded for the work that they do. And if you do bring in, I think the argument was made, you know, Ryan Tuberty has brought in those commercial clients um, into the Late Late Show. And perhaps that is the case. But, you know, certainly there's going to be have to be a lot more transparency around these things going mm. forward. And I think Ryan Tuberty himself said, look, even with regards to my contract, you know, publish the contract. Um, and, and, and Patrick Hilda's contract, of course, now is out there. So maybe that could become much more commonplace in the in future. OK, we'll watch that space. I'm sure everybody will be watching that space uh, so long as uh, it's possible to watch RTA. And of course, a lot of that depends on the licence fee. Thank you indeed, Gabia, for joining us uh, this morning. Gabia Gotta Vets Katia, uh, political reporter with uh, the Irish Independent. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming uh, to us uh, this morning. 
Nicola, thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message in response uh, to the email we read out earlier on from Jean in Trim. She says, while I don't know you, your letter seems like you are coming from a position of privilege with little hardship. A short overheard conversation or observation does not mean that everyone is working the system. Purchases and TV subscription pay VAT to the government. We all live in society and need to contribute. The children's education is our future. Wishing you a happy day, says Nicola. Thanks, uh, as I say, for your text. Uh, David in touch saying, good morning, Michael. Uh, how much are, are these disposable vapes? Uh, I don't know. Are they fibre? I don't know. Somebody will let me know. Uh, are telephone number is 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm uh, I think Chris is saying 8 euro uh, I, I hope that's right David uh, somebody else saying uh, will they get people to sign a petition to uh, stop children riding e-scooters uh, that can harm themselves and other people a lot quicker than e-cigarettes interesting text thank you for sending it to us Cahill in Mornington says good morning Michael I will willingly and happily break the law rather than give money to Tubbs Duffy and the Cabal greed 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 thank you Cahill in Mornington uh, and just to decode that for anybody listening who didn't understand uh, that means Cahill's not paying his TV licence uh, because uh, he's not happy with RTE staff uh, somebody else says just uh, thought Michael Remember, some government a long time ago brought in a punitive double tax called the USC for a number of years. It's still here. Why can't they just push that wad of cash towards RTE instead of screwing us again with another increase in the TV licence or the media licence or whatever they call it? Thank you indeed if you have been in touch. As I say, our text number, WhatsApp number 86 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Tusla is failing children in Louth and Meath who are in their care because uh, they've been deemed to be at risk of significant harm in their home. Some 29 children at the time of uh, the HICWA inspection into Tusla's Louth Meath service, the Child Protection Notification System, case managed, they say, by two assessment and intervention teams in counties Louth and Meath based in Drogheda, Dundalk and Navan. At the time of inspection 29 children listed which comprised of 14 families. In addition uh, they looked at uh, the cases of 47 children who had been removed from the service in the 12 months prior to the inspection. Uh, There's uh, six ways of measuring how Uh, the system operates and uh, it seems as though uh, the service provided by Tusla has failed for the most part on four out of uh, the six standards. Let's speak about this with Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreen, who's a Fianna Fáil spokesperson on children and Rurio Murakushin Fane TD in Laos. A very good morning to you, Erin McGreen, and thanks for joining us up to, and to you, Rurio Murakou. Erin McGreen, first of all, though, what do you make of uh, this report from HICWA? I think there's no other way we can be only disappointed, Michael, and hugely disappointed in the lack of compliance on, on as you said, four out of the six markers. Um, it's extremely worrying. And when you look at the situations where uh, where Tusla gets involved, those child protection, um, it's 
they're, those children are at risk. And when balls are dropped, they're at further risk. They're higher, they're more vulnerable. And potentially we'll end up in worse situations, potentially you know, in far more significant harm. Um, so for me, it is absolutely hugely disappointing. One of the things that came out of the report was, for me, which makes it not only for focus on, on the loud mead um, staff, but on a national level, this was the last area of the 17 areas that were that were in, that were investigated by HICWA. Similar problems were in all were in most of the other areas, and plus the oversight on national on the national level did not you know say well if it's in most of the other areas let's contact every area all our 17 areas to look at their governance issues to look at these areas because it's across everywhere um, and that is for me yes we can say that loud and need were, were 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 failing in areas but nationally were failing and at national level Tusla was failing to highlight this to all areas um, and to make it far quicker interventions. And when, the, when it was loud needs turn to come along for their investigations, um, the Hicks investigations, things should have been improved because nationally things should have been identified. Mm. And that for me is... The, is, is it possible? Great. Because one of the big problems seems to be a shortage of staff. Yes, Absolutely. We see um, in, in the report, it was noted that in, I think 2020 was highlighted that there was a significant risk to, to, for services in 2020 because of shortfall of staff. And we, all, we see now that there is a prioritisation. There, is a, there, is, you know, there has been you know, a recruitment campaign. We're seeing things being escalated, but because of the HICWA report, no, but they've been identified since 2020. And I just wonder, you know, where is that gap of three years? What has happened in the meantime? Where has been Tusla? Has they have they, you know, contacted the department in relation to this serious, serious shortfall? Where, where, where has the, this, you know, really important information gone to in the meantime that we're now? you know, chasing, chasing the horse as, as it bolted out the door. Okay, uh, there's two red-rated uh, risk ratings, uh, Rory O'Muraku. Uh, in other words, uh, the most serious, which uh, HICWA says need to be addressed immediately uh, and, of course, are of most concern. One of them to do with policies and standards to protect children and promote their welfare. That's a red risk uh, and that children receive a child protection and welfare service which has effective leadership, governance and management. That's a red risk. Uh, that's very, very worrying, isn't it? It's very worrying. Unfortunately, we're not used to these sort of stories that we're, we're not exactly shocked at this point. And look, yeah, it was stated earlier by yourself. The fact is here we're dealing with, what is it, 29 vacant posts and a high turnover of uh, staff you go through the report and you'll hear something about increased caseloads. So the reality for that, and anyone you talk to who's uh, operating in uh, Tuzla will say at times where there isn't, and let's say if we talk outside of the social workers, the social workers will deal with you know those issues they're dealing with. See if there isn't a social worker available to, um, obviously, for a particular kid, and we could be talking a high-risk kid, right? Somebody else is dealing with that issue. So they're dealing with that issue on top of their already full caseload. 
So this means that you're dealing with staff that are under severe pressure. No wonder there's a huge level of turnover. And think of the particular issues and the important pieces of work that there are to do. Look, we also know that they're going to, like, to talk here about interagency work. And yes, uh, it talks very positively in relation to it. But the rest of us and any of the, the people that you'll talk to in Tusla will talk about they're going to suffer from the fact you're dealing with families that can't access mental health services, that can't access disability services, um, particularly in relation to kids, but also in relation to, you know, adults. So, um, you know, it's like, I know, obviously... At times, you're also dealing with the impact of the housing crisis. So unfortunately, everything is coming together to produce a perfect storm. But look, there is some, there has been some positive commentary, I think, that LMFM have got in the sense of, you know, a, a plan to a degree to rectify this. But it's hard to see how this won't be rectified unless there's a decent piece of workforce planning that we ensure we put the people in position. Mm. And let's be clear, see if this... What this is to me, best case scenario, and, and there are some positives in the sense that there is work being done with people, you know what I mean, even if it's not necessarily by the social workers and all the rest of it, and about the case conferences that are planned around families and putting serious effort into involving as many of the family members as possible. But but the problem is you're firefighting. Like we've talked about multiple issues over the years and we've talked about the importance of early intervention. Well, nothing in this report or anything else I've heard on the ground tells me about early intervention. So no more than the issues sometimes that come to us, you're already dealing with uh, the issue that has blown up. You're dealing with the disaster scenario. So, uh, and then we have to bring all the pressure to bear, but that also means you're dealing with those issues that are really resource intensive and all the rest of it. And look, see if somebody's got, let's say they can deal with five, six, you know, particular families at one particular time, but now let's say they're dealing with 10 or 12. And let's say we have three particular bad instances that occur within those three families. I don't know how somebody puts it all together. You're dealing with people under severe, mm. severe pressure. So we have to fill these positions. And we also need to look at this in an overall holistic way from a point of view of how can we intervene with families at an earlier stage so we can avoid some of the worst scenarios so some of these kids don't end up being in that high-risk factor. Well, I think you'd have a, a child protection agency um, and people might say, we have one, it's called TUSLA, but this report says TUSLA doesn't have the wherewithal to do the job that it's charged with. This inspection, Perfectly. this inspection, the report says, found non-compliances in the service's ability to perform its functions in line with relevant legislation, national policies and standards. There's insufficient oversight of the children and three of the 29 children that were in care didn't have an allocated social worker. Yep, they didn't have an allocated social worker and what is it, for an extended period of time. None of that is good enough. Now, that's in no way tolerable. Two, 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 months, two months in the case of two of the children, uh, six weeks in the case of a, a third child. A lot can happen in six weeks. Yeah, exactly. And, and let's assume that somebody else has to catch that to a degree and among all the other pieces of work that you have to do, which means that somebody from another section of Tusla is dealing with somebody else's caseload also. Um, but the fact is, if you don't have enough people to fill these positions, if you don't have enough oversight, if you don't have enough governance, you're going to have fall-throughs. Fall and my difficulty is, you know, like I said earlier, what we're miles away from talking about um, early intervention. Like this is, uh, here, we basically have a system, you read through the report, all you're going to hear is capacity, capacity issues. Therefore, we have an organisation due to these 
gaps that are in it that is not fit for purpose at this point in time and that is under severe pressure and I'm not taking away that there's a huge amount of social workers and there's a huge amount of case workers and all the rest of it that are doing really, really difficult work but the problem is each one of them have probably got too much in their caseload Mm. so the fact is that creates dangers and like I said, the bit that kills me is if we had if we had Puslip that was properly that was properly resourced that it could deal with issues at a far earlier stage because look warnings always come from school and other sections and 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 mm. whatever else and would be able to deal with it but let's also accept that this is across society that we have the added issue in relation to unfortunately kids and drug use and all the rest of it and those particular issues and again like I said you're going to have the issue that you don't have the addiction services you don't have the mental health services you'll get that dual diagnosis excuse thrown up that you know what I mean, where people yeah. can't get services, and and really, as I say, well, Hickwa wanted to know what they were going to do about it. They they wanted a report uh, which would ensure the safety of uh, the children uh, and uh, to outline how they were going to provide a service that would mean that children would be safe. They say they got a, a lot of promises, at least a, a detailed response uh, from Tusla, which. Uh, says uh, that they're going to strengthen the governance and oversight of cases. Uh, they're going to have improved supervision and monitoring. Uh, they're going to update guidelines uh, in terms of looking after the children. They're going to try to fill some of these vacancies. Uh, do you trust those promises? Well, look, I'm very glad that at least there's an acceptance that we need a plan. Therefore, I like to see that a plan in place. I'd probably like to see a bit more detail in relation to it. And like that last point in relation to filling places, to me, that would seem to be the, uh, the nearly needs to be the first piece. Because you, you can have all the governance and all the rules that you want. See, if you don't have the people to enforce and employ it, then it's going to be absolutely meaningless. We also have the wider issue, and it's been said before, that we don't have enough foster parents and, and, and all the rest of it. But look, we, we have to address, obviously, the working conditions of those within Tusla that they can at least, and that they're sufficiently resourced with the weapons and tools that they need that they can provide those protections to kids, which at this point in time don't seem to be happening. And then if we were fully resourced properly, we could do far more of the intervention piece, which would okay. take an awful lot of these kids out of this high-risk scenario. But look, yeah. let's be clear, that there's an element of the book stops with government in relation to mm. this. You know what I mean? Okay, it's well, let's here. talk about that resource. Erin McGreehan, you would imagine that if children in the care of the state aren't safe, that the state agency, Tusla, would have been crying out for help, that they would have been raising the red flag, that they would have gone to the minister, they would have said, we can't do the job that we've been tasked to do, these children are at risk, we need help, we need resources. Uh, You would imagine and hope that that was the case, Uh, and if not, that's one question. If it was the case, why wasn't that help forthcoming? I think they're very good questions, Michael, and I think, you know, you would imagine if, if things were... Um, if Tusla was doing its job it would have identified these as I said earlier on they've been identified in the other areas of the of Tusla the 17 areas why not why not make an, an, an intervention earlier um, the report also you must go when you go through all the report the, it does as you said identify all the actions to comply to, to ensure to comply and if you look through it there are, there are a lot of the actions 
of compliance are complete. So thankfully, in Laos, our two team leaders have now taken on the supervision of two additional social care workers. And that has relieved pressure on the principal social worker to focus on the supervision of social work staff. In Mead, the principal social social worker has been taken on the... taking on supervision of social worker staff in the absence of team leaders pending the recruitment. And there are new graduates. There, there, if you go through the report, mm-hmm. a lot of the actions have been completed. However, again, repeat, you know, the fact that we have allowed the situation to occur. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, 29 vacancies, a high turnover of staff. Um, consistency for children, all children, is really, really important and so much more for children at risk. And when you have a turnover of staff, I would like to know, has Tusla have had exit interviews? Why are we leaving? How can we get them back into the system? What is, what is our, you know, the, mm. the career progression within, within it? I speak about this in, across all our, all our healthcare systems, you know, for, from our disability services to primary care services to mental health services. We have such a high turnover of staff, and, and Rory is 100% right there. High turnover of staff, huge level of vacant posts. And the fact is, when you have vacant posts, those folk, those, the resources are put in place. It's the capacity that's not. So government have resourced this. Capacity has not, ta- has not been taken up. Okay. That is where we find it. And, and I must say that when you look, when, just to speak about the people working in our services, the views in the report from the people who use the services. Mm-hmm. One child said that the social worker is really good with everyone. Mm-hmm. They felt heard. That That's when the services are provided, though. It doesn't yes, take absolutely. it away but from I, but the But I concern. also want yep. to say that, mm-hmm. it's do- mm-hmm. you know, this report is a, a criticism of governance, a criticism, criticism of, of, of all the situations that have been left uh, not compliant. Mm-hmm. But for our first... Uh, and resources. When they get face-to-face with the capacity... Um, and, and, and human resources, not financial resources, because the vacant posts are funded. Okay. So they wouldn't be they wouldn't be vacant. Okay. Just ju- just conclude on that very very briefly, please, Rory Marku. Yeah. Well, look here. Uh, of course, they're positive in the sense of interim solutions and people being put in. Okay, place but it's not the, sure the, the point there. That it's not a question of resources because uh, the posts are funded. Yeah, well, then it's a fact that we need to make... There's two things. We're talking about high turnover, and I would agree with what Aaron says in the sense of, like, it makes absolute sense that you would do exit interviews. Now, from my talking to people in the system and in the service, what they, yeah, you'll hear very positives. You will also hear the difficulty that there is with morale across the board because of the huge caseloads that people are dealing with. And, like, let's just think of some of the circumstances that you could possibly be dealing with in this particular necessary work. So, as I said before, people under severe pressure. And here you're talking about after a period of time under severe pressure, people will break. So that's something we need to address. And we need to do whatever is necessary. Look, government in the last while likes to talk about workforce planning. We need to make sure we have enough workforce planning from a point of view that we have a throughput of graduates and whatever who can do the pieces. We know the issues of the other agencies that don't have the supports that are needed. We need to make sure that they are also filled because that has an impact. But let's be clear, we need to make sure that everything is done from a point of view of filling these gaps. Well, they're very vulnerable children. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. I've run over time. I have to leave there. Thank you both for your time and indeed for joining us on the programme today. Sinn Féin, TD in Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Murakou. And 
Senator Erin McGrehan, who is Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on children. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Thanks to uh, Tom, who says he's one of the people not getting a TV licence. He says, I don't have RTE on my TV. I don't watch it or any Irish TV, and I don't listen to any of the RTE radio, so why should I pay for a TV licence? I don't want it. And before people start saying everyone has RTE on their TV, you don't. If you buy your telly up the north, says Tom, and somebody else in touch saying disposable vapes are €7 Euro in Ireland. Ireland. Thanks uh, for your messages to the programme today. Now, hands off our fish. That's a, a message from Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey, who's a member of the European Parliament's Fisheries Committee and has charged Norway as a rogue state by demanding that Ireland's blue uh, whiting would uh, be available to them to fish while at the same time doing deals with Russia. Uh, a very good morning to you Colin Markey and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You're worried about uh, the uh, fish uh, that uh, we do deals with here. Many would say that we gave away our fish uh, when we joined the EEC. I think, yeah, look, that's a historic thing, and sometimes I think there's too much too much made of that. I think the reality is that we're, the current situation is where Ireland, if you like, has very significant fishing fishing grounds and fishing uh, area, if you like, but that is shared with Europe. And then Europe, in turn, at times, does deals with the like of the Nordic countries, be it the Faroe Islands, Norway, Iceland, on different fish stocks. And the concern is that at times, let's say, other European countries, the like of Holland, Denmark, uh, Spain, particularly Holland, would look to do, uh, Europe to do negotiations with these Nordic countries so they'd have access to their waters for, for different type of fish like cod. And in turn, they're selling out Irish waters in the interest of the Dutch fishermen. And, and Ireland is getting squeezed in the middle. And this is a concern we've had for a long time. This came up last spring in relation to Norway in particular, where that deal was, was attempted to be done to give Norway, which essentially was unfettered access to Irish waters. And we pushed very hard to block that, and we were successful in blocking that last spring. But the whole negotiations are starting again this year for, for 2024. And the concern is not only Norway, but equally, uh, if you like, uh, Iceland and the Faroe Islands, both who have expanded their fishing fleets enormously over the mm. last 10 years. So these are, these are in effect, side deals, are they? They're essentially trade-offs. They'll trade-off access for quota. So essentially, Europe will do deals with, with Iceland and Faroe Islands to get access to their waters for, for quota in, in return for access into European waters for, for and in turn for quota. But the point is that it would be other European countries that would be benefiting from the use of Irish waters and and doing deals on that basis with, with these Nordic countries. And I suppose it's further complicated by the fact that these Nordic countries, particularly Norway, were, were in, in league with the Russians in relation to some of these, these fisheries rights as well. And that was one thing we called out last spring. And it's it was something that, that registered in fairness because we got great support from the EU then to, to if you like, to particularly from the EU Commissioner, to, to block Norwegian access into Irish waters, which stood for a long number of months. And eventually we got a deal which was 
significantly more favourable to Ireland than, than previous years. OK, you may say it's historic, but many fishermen would still uh, be very much aggrieved at the fishing rights that we gave up in order to join the EEC, now the European Union. How is it that European countries can negotiate fishing rights, Irish fishing rights, uh, without our permission as such? Well, I think this is the issue. It's, it's, I won't say, obviously, as part of the EU, it's an EU decision, an EU a negotiation. But I do think that it, in more recent years, we've been a little bit more focused in terms of our, our position within that. And we, the, the stand we took last year in terms of not allowing Norwegian access into Irish waters with the support of, in fairness to the EU commissioner and, and with, the, with the efforts of the, all the Irish representatives, um, we made good headway in relation to making a stand there and that's that's what we want to build on now again this year because if we can we essentially kept the Norwegians out of Irish waters and when they ultimately got access three months later into, into the fishing season they well they lost the opportunity of the first three months but also we, we got uh, some some access to, to Norwegian waters in return and access to quota, more importantly, blue whiting quota for Ireland, which which is a, was a first and set of precedent, and we want to try and build on that. OK, but we obviously need to fight our, our corner. Is it that uh, when uh, fishing rights and fishing quotas are, are being negotiated in Irish waters, that in effect it's not Irish waters, it's European waters? That is the reality of how it's negotiated. I think the situation that's probably that Ireland's found itself in is that Brexit impacted Ireland more than anybody else. We lost 16% of our fish quotas. And as a result, it's given us a stronger hand. I'm not saying that's a, that's a very negative situation, but it has given ourselves a stronger hand in terms of negotiating from a European perspective and said, look, we were the biggest losers, so we're the ones that have to be looked like uh, compensated the most and not losing sight of the fact that this ultimately are Irish waters and while we are members of the EU they're still Irish waters and that shouldn't be lost sight of and I think that's something we probably haven't focused on over the years Irish being good Europeans we didn't always uh, concentrate from an Irish perspective enough maybe and I think we've we've tried to make that point more and more in recent years and point out that ultimately these are Irish waters while Mm. we are members of the EU we should get, get benefit from them more than other countries particularly countries that are looking to trade air waters for, for a, let's say, access for non-EU countries, which is, seems, seems unreasonable. And I suppose on top of that, the like of the blue whiting, which, are, which the Irish fishermen would fish, they actually use, get that into higher values. Like the, the Norwegians ultimately use it for, for a feeding fish farms, the, the salmon farms, whereas the Irish fishermen use it for, for human consumption. And I think that's, that's the scale to which they... they technical skills, if you like, of the Irish industry that they can take a product and add value to it for human consumption over and above what others were using just to feed fish farms. Mm. And when these deals are are done, there is no veto. Ireland has no veto. Uh, The deal is done and that's it and we have to accept it. We essentially have to accept it, yeah. But I think the the Mm. point is we have to position ourselves in a stronger scenario. We held out up until St. Patrick's Day last year and as a result, we, we would have got a better deal. And we can put a lot of pressure on and we can, uh, if you like, uh, we, we had good support from the Fisheries Commissioner, Commissioner Sinkovicius mm. 
last year and we'll be hoping we can look for that similar support this year. Uh, explain the mechanics of it. Uh, is it a, a vote? Is it a majority of 27 countries? And is it that we are just one of uh, the 27 countries? We are one of the 27 countries. It is a, it is a majority. It goes through the council. Ultimately, is, is a lot of where this is, is signed off on. So it would the council of ministers would have a key part to play in it. But I think the important thing is to, to position ourselves well in advance of that. And it's, it's about building alliances with other countries. The likes of, for instance, the Spanish and the French, who would traditionally be... I suppose adversaries of Ireland in terms of the fishing fish rights, uh, like the concern at the moment is the expansion of the, the Dutch fleet, and, well, the Norwegian fleet in particular and the Faroe Islands, but in, in a EU context, the, the Dutch fleet, which is essentially owned by one, one, major, one major player that controls most of the Dutch industry and indeed has, has ships on, on, let's say, flags of other countries. So would be a very, very big player in the market. And they have... They have very significant influence and as a result uh, it's, it's, we may be actually building alliances elsewhere where we traditionally wouldn't to, to, to stand against that if you like. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael, MEP, Colin Markey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning and thanks uh, to those of you who've been texting us. Uh, a text uh, from somebody about uh, the interview at the beginning of uh, the programme with Sinn Féin's own O'Brien asking, how many cases for this have been before the courts? This is men looking for sex in return for rent, sex for rent. Uh, I, I don't know of any that have been before the courts, and I think that's part of the problem. Uh, I think there's uh, some doubt as to whether it's illegal. Is it a benefit or is it a payment? Is it an agreement between consenting adults uh, and so on? Our caller says, more scaremongering by Ono Brain. Go and do something about the lack of homes in the country. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, we read out a, an email uh, from Jean and Trim earlier on and a text from a listener who says, I'm not surprised that that O'Brien woman from Trim is in her 40s and single with an attitude like that. I'm married. I have five kids and I work seven days a week. So my kids have a good education. We don't have a social life. We don't have Netflix or anything like that. We don't have fancy phones as everything I earn goes towards all of the bills that have to be paid. I am fuming after hearing that email that you read out. I can understand that and thank you indeed uh, for texting us to tell us. Tom, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same Tom uh, that was WhatsApping us, but this is a, a text message. Uh, and Tom says, Michael, can you ask what happens when an inspector knocks on the door to ask about a TV licence and uh, you don't have one? Can you just pay the 160 there and then? I think the answer is yes, Tom. I have a suspicion Tom might know that. He says, I'm asking for millions of my friends. <laughs> Thanks uh, indeed, uh, Tom, uh, for your message to the programme uh, this morning. Uh, as I say, I don't know, but that's the same Tom that was uh, WhatsApping us earlier on, uh, but interesting comments nonetheless. Now, it's another big day in the history of the United States. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Shay Stevens. Former President Donald Trump will be arraigned in Washington, D.C. on Thursday on four counts stemming from the special counsel's probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Defense attorneys argue that the case is really about a disagreement over free speech, but prosecutors say it is really about a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government. 
among other things. That's uh, National Public Radio, NPR, and how they're reporting on uh, the imminent appearance of Donald Trump in court on these uh, charges and I suppose uh, that is one of the questions. Will Donald Trump actually be in court? Uh, John Lauro is one of Trump's attorneys and he was speaking to National Public Radio's All Things Considered programme. This is what he had to say about that question to Sasha Pfeiffer. Yes, the arraignment is under a summons which is a voluntary way of um, requesting the presence of a party before the court, and obviously the president will comply. So no option of doing this virtually? Well, we're looking for a more diverse area that has a more balanced political jury pool. Um, You know, the country's very, very divided politically right now. This is a very divisive indictment. It goes to issues of free speech and political activity. So we're looking for a jury that will be more balanced and West Virginia was a state that was more evenly divided and we're we're hoping for a jury that doesn't come with any implicit or explicit bias or prejudice so it makes sense to go to a place like West Virginia. All right, well, that's uh, where the trial will be. Uh, The elections will be in November of next year. The prosecution says this will be a speedy trial. This is one of Donald Trump's uh, attorneys, uh, and he was asked by NPR if uh, the prosecution is right. Will this be a speedy trial? Well, speedy trial rights belong to the defence, not the government. The government has an obligation to turn over a lot of material and a lot of information, which they've not done yet, but they will. Uh, You know, the special counsel has, or the Biden Justice Department has been investigating this case for three and a half years. And uh, it just seems to me in fairness that we should have enough time to study the documents, be able to um, interview witnesses and, and look at the evidence in its totality, address a lot of legal issues with the judge as well. So what we want is a just trial, um, not simply a speedy trial. There's no need to railroad any defendant in the United States. And we're hoping the Justice Department will recognize that justice is more important than speed. So whether it's before or after the elections, a big question I think a lot of people would like to know the answer to is if Donald Trump will himself give evidence. Well, we have to see what the evidence is, but we're in an election cycle. The Biden administration decided to bring a an indictment against a political opponent in the middle of a campaign. And uh, the thought of President Trump um, having to uh, spend his time at trial instead of um, actively debating and talking about the issues against his political opponent is something that I think the judge is going to consider. But, but more importantly, you know, we have a we have a challenge ahead to get ready, and there's a massive amount of information, and we're entitled to look at it. And that's uh, John Laurel, one of Donald Trump's attorneys, speaking to the All Things Considered program. Sasha Pfeiffer was putting the questions to him on National Public Radio NPR. That's our program for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.